Ephesians chapter 4, and I'm, we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 3. Ephesians chapter 4, looking at verses 1 through 3. Paul says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Father, we thank you for uh, your goodness to us. We thank you for the Word of God uh, that instructs and encourages us and and keeps us uh, out of sin. God, thank you for your Word that that gives us a glimpse of, of the future that you have for us, of what you've done in us, of who you are. Uh, Father, help us to see those things in the Bible today. I pray that your Holy Spirit would open our eyes and enable us to see the glory of Jesus, the glory of what Jesus has done in us and for us. And Father, that you would compel and and motivate and equip and empower us uh, to live in a way that's worthy of that. Father, we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, we have crossed an imaginary line in the book of Ephesians, all right? There's no line there in the Bible, I know that. Uh, I'm not, the chapter breaks really aren't even in the, in the original Greek text. That's something that was added later. But, but what we see between chapter 3 and chapter 4 is a shift in emphasis, okay? So in the first three chapters, and by the way, Paul does this in a lot of, a lot of his epistles, not just Ephesians. But in the first three chapters, there's a heavy emphasis upon who God is, what God has done, the glorious things that God has done in you. So the first three chapters chapters, we have this heavy push of just saying, God is glorious and God has done some incredible things in every born again believer. Everybody who says, I'm a follower of Christ, he has saved me. Okay, chapters 1, 2, and 3 describe for you the heavenly, outrageous, glorious things that God has done in and for and will do for you. Okay? And now in chapter 4, there's almost a line drawn where now there's a different emphasis and the emphasis now is, okay, what are you going to do in response to what God has done? Okay, so the first three chapters, this is what God has done. God has done gloriously. Now chapters 4, 5, and 6, how are you going to respond to that? What, what are you going to do in response? How are you going to live in response to chapters 1, 2, and 3? Okay, if you believe that God is who chapters 1, 2, and 3 say He is, if you believe that He has done what chapters 1, 2, and 3 say that He's done, then how are you going to live your life? How are you going to work at your job? How are you going to raise your family? How are you going to build relationships? How are you going to be the church? Okay, and so if we go back to chapters one, two, and three. We see some incredible things. Here's an overview. Chapter one, chapter one, verse three says we've been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies. We've been chosen before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless in Him. We've been predestined to adoption. We've been lavished with His riches, great with the riches of His grace. We possess an inheritance in the heavenlies. We are sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Chapter two kind of backed us up and said, and remember, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. You were caught in this flood of of cultural uh, God-dishonoring behavior. You were broken on the inside and yet God reached down and made you alive. God joined you to Jesus Christ. God filled you with His Holy Spirit. Instead of being an object of God's wrath, you are now an object of God's eternal kindness. And now chapter 4 says, basically, how are you going to respond to that? Okay, if that's you here today, if if you're able to say, I'm a born-again believer, and so all of that is true of me, I am chosen.
chosen. I, I, I am predestined to adoption. I'm in God's family. I'm forgiven. I, I, I'm joined to Jesus. I'm made alive. The spirit of the living God lives in me. That is me. And then chapter 4 begs you to think about, okay, if that's you, then how are you going to respond? How are you, you going to live in a way that reflects that you believe what chapters 1, 2, and 3 say? You know, Em and I have been the recipients of, of just incredible grace by the people of God. Uh, just in, in our salvation, in our spiritual journey, all the way from, from college, Bible college and seminary. Uh, we have just had some incredible things happen to us by the grace of God. Just God providing for us. God just, just giving us His grace and giving us His riches. Uh, everything from, from in seminary, uh, a wad full of cash taped on our door. When our medical bills were due, you know, and we still to this day don't know who it's from. Uh, things like vehicles being given to us. And, and there have been times where we've just had this, this grace just showered upon us. And, and we, we're just, just sitting there thinking, we are not worthy of this. We didn't earn this. We didn't deserve this. Man, we, this is just God's favor upon us. And, and there have been many times where we struggle with just, okay, how do, how do we respond to this? I mean, how do you respond when someone does something so incredible for you? You know, you're just like, okay, thank you just seems really small. Yeah. Have you ever felt that way? Have you ever felt when someone just did something incredible for you and, and, and you said thank you, but thank you just seemed not to weigh enough, you know? I mean, you wish that you could make it weigh more, okay? That, that's really what Paul is saying here in chapter 4, verse 1, when he says, Therefore, as a prisoner of the Lord, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. That, that, that phrase, they're worthy, or that word, they're worthy, is a word that means balancing the scales. That, that's the root of that word, is, is balancing the scales. And so the idea is, okay, you got chapters 1, 2, and 3 on this side. You know, you, you, you're, God's, you're in God's family. You're forgiven. You're blessed. You're joined to Christ. You're made alive. All of these things are just weighing down the scale in your life that God has just dumped His blessings upon you. For all eternity, He's going to lavish His grace upon you. For all eternity, He's going to reveal His acts of kindness to you, okay? All of that is loaded up on this side of the scale. Okay, on the, on the other side of the scale, how are you going to live? Okay, how are you going to respond to that? How, how are you going to sing? How, how are you going to go to church? How are you going to build relationships? What are you going to do with your time? Do, do you see that, you know, and, and what Paul is saying is, man, try to live in a way that reflects the fact that we know that is really heavy what God has done for us. Now, now, now we got to be careful here. Two things I'm not saying, two things Paul's not saying. He's not saying that we earn our salvation, Okay. See, you could maybe shift over and go really wrong with this and say, okay, live in a way that, that's worthy of the gospel. Okay, what that means is I need to do a bunch of things to earn my salvation. I need to do a bunch of things to earn God's favor. You can't, okay? Okay, you can't do that. You can't earn God's favor, okay? You, you, you are unable to do that because we're broken. We're sinners. We, we've transgressed against Him and we can't do anything to earn His favor. All we can do is receive from Him His grace, okay? So it's not saying you need to earn God's favor, nor is it saying you need to pay God back. You know, a lot of people, when they read verses like this, and even in their, in their life, a lot of people look at, at church and, and giving and service as paying God back. You know, well, God saved me, so I got to go to church, you know, paying back. You know, I, I got to have 500 of those dudes to, to get God paid back, okay? That, that's a joke, isn't it? I, I mean, it's a joke to even think about. Can you pay God back? I mean, what, what are you going to pay Him with? You know, what, what are you going to do that, that's going to in any way pay God back? Not only is it a joke, it's insulting, isn't it? I mean, when, some, when, when you do something really gracious to somebody, it, is, what, is what you want is for them to be like, well, maybe this is what you want, okay? This is not what God's want. Is what you want for, for them to be like, okay, well, I'll pay you for that, you know? I mean, that almost takes away grace, doesn't it? 
So, so we're not earning our salvation. We're not trying to pay God back. We know we can't pay God back. What are we trying to do? We're trying to live in a way that says we recognize what you have done. We, we believe, chapters 1, 2, and 3, we believe what you've done in our lives. We believe who you are. And there's an appropriate response to having been called with such a high calling. Notice verse 1 says, As a prisoner of the Lord, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. We have an incredible calling upon our lives. We're called to Jesus. Called to forgiveness. Called to the kingdom of God. Called to the family of God. Called to an eternal inheritance. And now the question is, how do we live in such a way that says we honor that calling? President of the United States, he's called to an incredible calling. Whether you like him or not, I mean, to be the president of a nation is a high calling, is it not? And and even with that, we expect, there's just something in everybody, we expect that that he live a certain way, you know? We expect that he doesn't do a a press conference in his sweats, you know? And we we expect that he he doesn't eat nachos in front of the, the, the tomb of the unknown soldier, you know? We expect that when the camera zooms in on him on the national anthem and, and the Marines are there and maybe there's soldiers coming out of the plane that have been killed, we expect that he's not picking his nose or he's not crying. I mean, we expect those things. Now, do, do presidents always act in a way that honors their calling? No, they don't. No, they don't. Okay, but, but do you see the connection there? We, we have such a higher calling. You may not be the President of the United States, but you know what? If you're a born-again believer, if you've been drawn to by the Holy Spirit to be in the family of God, you have a higher calling. Whether you believe that or not, I don't know. But that's the truth. You have a higher calling. And therefore, we need to live in a way that gives weight to that calling. We need to live in a way that honors the calling to which we've been called. So what does that look like? What does it look like to live in a way that that says, man, the gospel is worthy. The gospel is glorious. Well, the rest of Ephesians is really about that, okay? As we look through the rest of Ephesians, what does that mean? Well, Paul's going to talk about the way you talk and and dealing with your anger. He's going to talk about putting away falsehood and and being a man of integrity and your job. He's going to talk about marriage. He's going to talk about purity. He's going to be talking about parenting. He's going to be talking about work relationships and and spiritual spiritual warfare. He's going to talk about a whole bunch of things that describe, okay, the rest of this book, how do we live in a way that honors what God has done us, all right? But I want you to notice the first thing that he says, okay? That's interesting to me. The, the, the first thing that Paul goes to, I therefore, prisoner, prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called with all, this is telling us how to do it, with all humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another in love. And here's the first thing. Here's the first way that you live in a way that honors the calling upon your life. Verse 3, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Now, isn't that interesting? That's interesting to me. Maybe, maybe, maybe you, don't, you don't think that's interesting, but it's interesting that, that Paul would put that first, you know? That he wouldn't say, live in a, in, a, in a way that's worthy of the gospel, and so be pure, or be holy, or don't be immoral, or don't lie, or don't steal. He, he goes on to say all of that stuff, but it's interesting to me that the first thing he says is to treat one another in a way that brings about harmonious relationships in the church. That's interesting, isn't it? And you know what's funny is, that's not the only time he says that. 
the next book in the Bible is a, is a book to the, to the church at Philippi. And in Philippians chapter 1, verse 27, he says almost the exact same thing. He says, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel. See, a little different, but, but it's the same, same principle there, right? Let, your, let the way you live be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you. What does he want to hear? That you're standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side. I love that picture. Striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Same principle. What what does he turn to? So so the first thing, and I think I I have good evidence to say that that we can say this, the first thing it means to live a life that's worthy of the calling upon our lives is to live in unity among the people of God. How one believer treats another, how we get along and relate with one another, what kind of Christ-centered relationships we build, that says something about the greatness of our salvation. That says something about what we believe about God, about what we believe about our salvation, our calling. Folks, we are proclaiming to the world what we think about Jesus, about His salvation, by how diligently we pursue harmony of relationships within the people of God. That's heavy, isn't it? That's real heavy. Because there are people, there are churches, there, there, there are times where we, we don't do that. We think, well, I can honor Jesus and I can be mad at this guy. And I can, be, I can be upset with everybody and I can have these broken relationships that I'm not going to fix. But I can still love Jesus. Man, not according to Paul. Paul says, if you want to live a life that's worthy of the gospel, then the first thing that's going to take place is, is you're going to live in harmony with the people of God. Why is that so important? Why would Paul put that first? Well... Several reasons. The visible church is the representation of Christ to the world. When the world wants to look at who is Jesus, who do they look at? They look at you. And what specifically do they look at? They look at your small group. They look at how you relate with other people. They look at your relationship. They look at how you minister to one another. They look at how you care for one another. They look at how you treat your wife and how how you raise your kids. They look at you in, in context of other believers, of who we are as a people. Folks, loving the people of God in whom the Spirit of Christ dwells is loving God. Okay, now, now here's the interesting thing that Paul comes back to. Verses 4, 5, and 6. He says, you're, you're really, you're already united. Okay? Look at verse 4. He says, there's one body and one spirit, just as you are called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God, and Father of all, who's over all and through all and in all. Okay, now, now, man, Paul, Paul makes that pretty clear. We're already united in the Spirit, right? I mean, we, we all came. If you're, if you're a believer here today, you came to Jesus the same way, okay? There wasn't some of you that came in this door and somebody else came in this other way. Well, somebody else, he just got in because his, his granddad was a deacon. No, 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 no. We all came the same way. We all came by realizing our depravity, our brokenness, our sin, our hopelessness, and saying, I'm a sinner. I can't make it. I need Jesus. Jesus is the Savior. We all all came by seeing that Jesus is everything that we need, that, that He is all that the Bible says He is, and we came by faith in Him. Did we not? We all came through the same gospel. We all came through the same Holy Spirit. If you're a believer here today, the same Spirit of God dwells in you that's in me, that, that, that's in everybody else in this room who's a believer. 
Okay, we, we have one church, one body of Christ. There, there's only one. We are His hands and feet. He is our head. We're already united in the spiritual realm. And what Paul is saying is that what is true in the heavenly realm ought to be true in your living room. And it ought to be true in our fellowship hall. And it ought to be true in your small group. And it ought to be true in your minivan on the way home from church. That reality of oneness, of harmony, of unity, of being pressed together in one body ought to be lived out and seen and visible to the world in the way that we live out what it means to be the church. Now, when people say unity, sometimes we get confused with that. Sometimes we think of uniformity. Sometimes we think of, of, of kind of a, a, a false unity that just says, hey, I'm not going to argue with you and we're just, we're just going to get along no matter what and, and I don't care what you believe and we're just, what you believe is fine and what I believe. No, that's, that's not unity, okay? That, that, that's not what Paul's talking about. You know what? In fact, we can't really have unity with someone who believes in a different Jesus, okay? Now, we can get along with them. We can love them. We can be forbearing to them. But we really can't have unity with someone who believes a different gospel. Does that make sense? We can't be the church together. You know, if you believe salvation is through, through Muhammad and I believe salvation is through Jesus, then, then I can love you and I can pray for you. But we really can't be the church together. Okay. Cause we're not united. Cause we're not of, of one body, one spirit and one father. We're not all those things that Paul just said. Okay. So, so it doesn't mean that we just lay down our doctrinal distinct, distinctives or what we believe. Okay. That's not what it means. It doesn't mean that we have to believe the exact same thing about everything. Okay. We do. We do need to believe the same thing about Jesus, about the gospel. Okay. But, you know, I got an email this, this week, and, and it's a pastor. Uh, what, what is 666 in the Bible? You know, and Revelation talks about 666. What do you think that is, you know? And I emailed him back, and I gave him like four or five choices that, that different people believe. And I kind of said, this is kind of where I lean to. But you know what? I, no matter what they say, and no matter what I say about 666, we, we can still be friends, okay? You know why? Because that's, that's an open-ended thing for me. That, that's, that's an open, it's what Driscoll calls an open-handed thing. I think that's that way he, he says that some things are closed and some things are open. That's open. You know why? Because I, I don't really know what it means. You know, I, I don't, John probably knows what it means. But I don't really know, you know, what is 666 going to be? Is it going to be, you know, a, a big mark on your head or a chip in you or, or just, just a way? I, I don't know. You know, I mean, all kinds of people, we have all kinds of things and I'm, I'm not sure. It, what, what I'm saying is there's a lot of things in the Bible that, that we don't have to, we don't have to believe the same thing about end times. You know, you might be a post-millennialist or a pre-millennialist or uh, whatever. I'm a pan-millennialist. That means it's all going to pan out in the end. Okay, that's what I am. Uh, but you don't have to be the same as me. All right? We're, we're, does that make sense? That's not, what, that's not what Paul is talking about. We might disagree on some minor matters. We might disagree on, on, on the best way to worship. You know, we might disagree on what kind of music we like or what kind of garbage you like or whether you like screens or, or hymnals. Or, you know, we might disagree on that stuff. That, that's okay. And in fact, that's really what Paul is talking about is, is unity in the context of that, of our differing personalities, our differing gifts. Folks, unity is a big deal. Look, look, look what he says in verse 3. Verse 3 says, Eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of, of peace. That word eager is an interesting word. It's a word that has an element of haste. has an element of urgency. Okay? I, I think of it as a crisis. All right? So verse 3 is saying, Look, look, quick, there's a crisis. You've got to be eager You've you, you got to be in crisis mode to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. In other words, there's an emergency at Lincoln Avenue every day. You know what the emergency is? The emergency is there's a critical need that we live in a way that maintains the unity of the Spirit. That we do it quickly. That we do it now. Folks, bad things will happen if we don't do it. That, that's the nature of an emergency, right? An emergency is something that if it doesn't get done, bad things will happen, right? 
Your internet going down is not an emergency. Please don't call 911 when your internet goes down, all right? And I know what you're going to say. You're going to say, my stuff on Farmville is going to die, all right? It's not going to die. It's not a real farm, okay? It's not an emergency, okay? Your house being on fire, that's an emergency. Why? Because bad things will happen. If you let that house burn, bad things will happen. People can get hurt. Somebody else's property could be dead. Bad things will happen. Call 911. There's a critical need to get the fire department there because it's an emergency. Paul is saying, be eager. Be eager. Be diligent. There's an emergency. This is critical. Bad things will happen if we don't handle this. If we don't maintain unity in the people of God. There's a continual, constant crisis to protect the unity of the church. Not so much like an organizational denomination. No, no, we're not talking about that. We're talking about a people level. Christ-centered relationships. The, 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 this unity by which, the, by which the Spirit of God binds us together. Okay? That, that's the kind of unity we're talking about. And the question is, how do we do that? How do, how do we do that? How do, how, how, do we, how do we carry that out? Well, man, Paul tells us how we carry that. This is the most exciting thing to me about this passage. And this has been such a blessing to me. I, I tell you, this is one of those weeks. And last week was one of those weeks where, where you know, when we, we talked about Paul's prayer, that just changed, that changed my life. Just, just beginning to pray, God, strengthen me in the inner man. This week, God really spoke to me about how do you maintain good relationships? How do you maintain harmony? How do you maintain the church? How do you maintain good friendships and be effective in ministry to other people? How do you resolve conflicts among brothers? How do you produce unity and peace? You know how you do that? Well, it starts with humility. Humility. Please hear that. Look at verse 2. With all humility. Okay, so so verse 1, live in a manner worthy of the gospel. Verse 2, how? Well, with all humility and gentleness and patience and bearing with one another in love. Be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit. You see, verse 2 is the how. Okay, so how? It begins with humility. Folks, it's not an overstatement to say that the most important factor in you having healthy relationships, the most important factor of you being able to build good good friendships with other believers, Christ-centered relationships, the most important factor, I, I believe this, it's, it's humility. Humility is huge. It's just huge in the Bible. Several times in the Bible, James 4, 6 is one of them. Another one's in 1 Peter 5, I believe. James 4, 6 says, God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And whenever I hear something like that, I don't want God against me. I want God for me. I want God behind me. I want his power. And so humility is a big deal, okay? Now, now, now what is humility? Well, lowliness of mind. Um, so what you think about yourself, the way you think about your world, but, but here's really, I want to go with this, and this is a popular model, but I want to go with this, this way of thinking about humility. Humility is thinking rightly about yourself, thinking rightly about God and thinking rightly about others. Okay. Humility is really how you think about yourself in relation to God and others. Uh, that, that's really the key of, of humility. And so it begins with a proper view of self, okay? So what do we need? how do we need to think about ourselves? We need to think rightly about ourselves. We need to remember what Ephesians 2 told us is that we're, we're broken. We're broken sinners. We need to remember that we're weak and desperate without Christ, okay? Now with Christ, man, we're, 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 we're forgiven and we're, we're placed in Christ. We're joined in. We're filled with the Holy Spirit. But on our own, what are we? We're, we're in need, Okay? We're prone to foolishness. We're apt not to see situations and circumstances rightly. And we need to remember that about ourselves. We're not infallible. We're not the judge. We're not above correction. 
In fact, we, we, we were people who were destined to hell. That's all we really deserve. And the only thing that brought about our salvation is the, is the pure grace of Jesus. Okay? We, we should have a proper view of ourselves. Not feeling that we, we, we need special privileges. Not feeling that we're, we're above others. Well, folks, we, we should not dwell on how I should be treated or how I should be seen or how I should be, 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 be catered to. Humility doesn't get offended or angry or bitter because we're not treated how we think we ought to be treated. Because humility has a proper view of ourselves. Humility means that we don't have unrealistic expectations about life. You know, you know a, a prideful person puts themselves at the center, okay? They, they, they're looking at themselves, they're exalting themselves, and therefore, they, in their mind, they should have all green lights and all blue skies and babies that aren't colicky and marriages that don't struggle and life without problems. And whenever any of those things goes down, what happens? They get frustrated and they get angry. Have you ever thought about that? You, you know, when you get angry because life doesn't go your way, there, there's a pride element there. There's an element that you're saying, look, I am the sinner here and, and things aren't going my way. Folks, that's, that's pride. Folks, when we're humble, we, we don't inherently believe that we deserve those things. Pride says you should cater me. Pride says I deserve to be made much of. And pride reveals itself in a lot of different ways, isn't it? Some ways are very obvious, you know. Some ways are, are boasting or provocative dress or constantly belittling other people. If you're one of those people or maybe you, you're around someone and they're constantly tearing down other people, constantly critical of other people, you know what the heart of that deal is? The heart of that deal is pride. The heart of that deal is I'm exalting myself by tearing down everybody else. Okay? But you know what? There are a lot of subtle ways. Here, here's where pride and humility get real tricky because there's a lot of subtle ways that we exalt ourselves. There's a lot of subtle ways that we make life about us. There's a lot of subtle ways, even in our conversations, that, that we'll, we'll drop things that, that, that make, make, make it about us, that exalt ourselves, that say, hey, I, I am above you, or I am over you, or I, I'm this, and, or you ought to be in awe of me, okay? Man, we, we do that in conversations. We do that on Facebook. We do that on Twitter. We do that in, on MySpace. We do that in, 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 in our small... I mean, it's just, it's just everywhere. And here's the tricky deal of it. it. It's hard to walk that line. It really is. You know, I was thinking about my own life. And, and uh, I have this habit of, of like coming in. If, I, if I've ridden in the morning and Drew didn't get to ride, you know, I have this habit of coming in and saying, Hey, man, drove 14 miles without you today. You know, where were you? On the couch, probably, you know, and, and no, I don't, I don't go that far, but you know, I'll just suddenly drop a hint about, you know, and I thought, man, Jason, is, is that, is that pride? I mean, there's part of me that likes to say, man, I'm just, you know, he's my buddy and we ride together. And so I'm, I'm just, you know, telling him, you know, we're just sharing this, this thing that we both like together. Maybe it is that, but you know what it could also be? It could also be me exalting myself. Uh, what I'm trying to tell you is this is tricky. Okay. And we, we should be patient with other people. You know, here's where we could go wrong. Oh, I see somebody doing that all the time. Okay. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Be careful. You see what we've done? We, we've been prideful, accusing them of pride. Okay. Because this is, thing, this is a heart issue. It's a heart issue. And, and, and so we got to look at our own heart. What am I doing? How, 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 how am I exalting myself? Or how am I exalting others? How am I exalting Christ? And, and look, look at your own life. But folks, when, you, when the focus is you, okay, you're bound to get annoyed with everybody whose focus is not you. Isn't that right? When, when you exalt yourself, you're bound to be angry with the people that you feel are sliding you or are not living up to your, your position or who you think you are. When, when, you, when you're shouting, feel sorry for me, you know what? You're not going to be interested in ministering to other people. When, when it's hard for you to forgive, 
It's going to be hard for you to forget when the only thing on your screen is, is the offense against you. And, and that's pride. Pride divides. Pride hinders healing relationships. Pride causes conflicts and injuries, which is why the best remedy to pride and the best catalyst for humility is having a proper view of God. Okay? You see, pride is, a, is an improper view of self. Humility is a proper view of self. Okay? The way to get humble is to have a right view of God. Man, we see that happening all the time in the Scriptures. Isaiah chapter 6. Remember what happens? Isaiah is, is caught up in a vision. Well, let me just read the whole thing to you. Verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. So Isaiah gets a glimpse of God sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. The train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. These are the angelic beings. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook as the voice of him who called and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, how, how do you think Isaiah is going to respond to that? Hey, Lord, look at my new shoes. Or, hey, hey, Lord, you know how long I rode my bike yesterday? Or, hey, Lord, you know, hey, I got this cool thing I need to, I've been wanting to tell you about. Now, verse 5, and I said, woe is me, for I am lost. The old King James says, I'm undone. <laughs> I like that. It's like I'm coming apart, you know. I'm undone. I'm lost. For I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. How does Isaiah respond? He responds in humility. A proper view of God enabled Isaiah to see himself a whole lot differently, didn't it? Same thing happens with Peter. Luke chapter 5. Uh, G, meet, Peter meets Jesus, and, and he meets him as, as, he's, as he's mending his nets along the, 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 uh, the lake. And, and they haven't caught anything. They've been out all night fishing. The best time to fish all night. Haven't caught nothing. They're mending their nets. Jesus says, hey, Peter, I'm going to get in your boat. You, you go out. Go out in the deep and, and, and drop out your nets. And Peter's like, man, this is not a good idea. It's not the right time to fish. But okay, because you said so, I will. They go out there. They drop out the nets. There's so much fish in the nets. It begins to sink the boat. They've got to call for help. Listen to what Peter says. Uh, Luke chapter 5. Luke chapter 5, verse 8. When, when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. You see, when people see the glory of Jesus, they automatically see themselves differently. Isn't that interesting? Isaiah, Peter, us. When, when you see the glory of Jesus, you're, you're going to see yourselves differently. It is hard to be impressed with yourself when you're looking at Jesus. You know? Isn't that great? You know, it's, it's like the guy who, who, who builds him a nice pile of rocks. It's hard for him to feel impressed about that if he's standing in the shadow of Mount Everest, you know? Or, 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 the, or the guy who, who's bragging about his bass boat, you know, as, as he rides over the wake of the aircraft carrier, you know? I mean, it's just hard to be impressed with yourself when you have, when you have God in, in your sights. And, and so seeing God brings about humility. Folks, it's difficult to be whiny about how you've been treated unfairly when you're gazing at Jesus' bloody body on the cross, that, that statement right there, when I wrote that, I mean, I had to stop. I had to stop and I had to confess my sin. By the way, confession of sin is, is a mark that you're on the right track to humility. That's a mark that things are happening as they should happen. But I had to stop right there because I, I'd been whiny about a relationship. I'd been whiny about, about something that I'd had to endure. And I had to stop right there and say, oh my. You know, because when I look at Jesus on the cross, when I look at his body being broken for me, when I look at him shedding his blood and being tortured, that I might live. It's hard for me to come over to my deal and say, but, oh, man, but I really got it bad, Jesus, you know. 
Folks, it's difficult to be bitter about how you deserve better when you are soaking your mind with the account of Jesus' death in your place. Folks, look at the cross. Looking at the cross helps us see our problems rightly. Looking at the cross helps us see our pain rightly. Looking at the cross helps us, helps us have a right view of relationships and of problems and of struggles. When we think about the glory of God, that brings humility. The proper mindset in our lives should not be, look at me, look at me, look at me. The proper mindset should be, look at Christ. Look at Christ. Pay attention to Christ. Think about Christ. And when you're looking at the cross, and when I'm looking at the cross, and when you're marveling about the glory of God, and I'm marveling about about the glory of God, you know the cool thing? We're going to get along. Isn't that great? I believe that. I believe that. We're going to get along. You say, well, pastor, but man, you, you know... You believe in screens, and I, th- I think hymnals are best. Hey, if we're both looking at the cross, we're going to work that out. It's going to be okay. Hey, old pastor, man, you, you want to do children's ministry this way, and I want to do it this way. It's, it's, if we're both looking at the cross, if we're both marveling at Jesus, God's going to work that deal out. He just will. In your family, in your marriage, man, in your, in your parenting with your kids, if everybody's marveling at the cross... Harmony is going to be worked out. That's, that's, a, that's a great tool, isn't it? You know, put that in your toolbox? I, I think I am. Humility. Humility brings about, it brings about unity. Now, specifically, how does it do that? Real quickly, and we're going to go fast from here on. Humility brings about, I think humility is the, the, the base layer there, okay? I think the rest of these things flow from humility. I think you have to have humility to get these other things. They're, they're, they're all kind of relatives of humility. But look what he says. Eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. All right, go back up to verse 2. It says, with all humility, where's that lead? Gentleness, okay? That, that word you might, might be translating in your Bible as meekness. It's, it's the Greek proudest. And basically gentleness is, is a word that when it's employed toward God, it's accepting God's dealing with us as good. In other words, however, however God prov- prov- providentially works in our life, it's the ability to say, you know what, God, I trust you. I'm not going to buck against you. I'm, I'm not going to fight against you. I, I'm just going to trust you, God. That's, that's meekness. That's a gentleness of spirit. When it's employed toward, toward other people, it's being self-controlled. It's having your emotions under control. It's being gentle with people. It's, it's, not, it's not dealing with people harshly. When it's employed toward, toward circumstances, it's letting things roll off you and onto God. That, that's a meek person. A meek person is one who, who, when things are falling apart, man, they're letting that stuff roll off of them and right onto God. Now, great pictures in the Bible of meek people. Moses, remember him? The Bible says he's the meekest guy that ever lived. Uh, right, right after that, it talks about how, how Aaron and, and Miriam got pe- two people closest in his life, how they attack him one day. They just come after him, and, and they come after him mean. They come after criticizing his wife, criticizing him, telling him not, he's not the only one that God speaks through, accusing him of things. Remember how, how Moses responds? He doesn't. <laughs> he doesn't attack him back. He just, he, he looks up to God, he lets God handle it. Man, God handles it. Gives Miriam leprosy. That's handling it, isn't it? You know what I mean? That's handling it. In fact, Moses is praying that God would heal her. David, remember David? David had great times of meekness in his life. Remember he's in the cave. Saul's been chasing him, trying to kill him for, for years. And David has the opportunity to cut his throat right then and there. David won't do it. He won't do it. He says, man, far be it from me. That I should take this into my own hands. I'm going to leave it to the Lord. 
Later on, one of my favorite passages, when, when Absalom has taken the throne from him, his own son betrayed him. He's having to leave Jerusalem in retreat. He's got his army with him. His old boy Shimei gets up on the hill, starts chucking rocks at his head, cursing him, mocking him. One of David's mighty, mighty men, I think it was Abishai. Abishai says, man, David, give the word and I'll go cut that guy's head off. His rock chucking days will be over, okay? <laughs> David says, no. He says, let him curse. He says, maybe God will see it and, and, and he'll reward me. What's David doing? He's being meek. I'm going to leave this in God's hands. Humility flows into meekness or gentleness, okay? Gentleness or meekness flows into patience. The Greek makrothumia means long-suffering. Long-suffering with stuff that's difficult, okay? And then just for time's sake, let's keep going. Patience flows into what? Bearing with one another in love. That's really the application, okay? If, if we have a, a humble mind... If we're, if we're looking at Christ and exalting Christ and seeing the glory of God, seeing ourselves in a right perspective, that's going to flow into gentleness or meekness and patience. And all of that together, the practical effect will be we will be willing to bear with other people. Now, specifically, why do you have to bear with people? You bear with people when? When they're irritating, when they're annoying, when they're, they're mean, when, when, when they let you down, when they're not there for you. When they're cranky or moody or inconsiderate or angry or selfish. When they have those moments in their life. And bearing with one another in love means instead of writing them off, you bear with them in love. Instead of slandering them, you pray for them. Instead of giving up on the friendship, you pursue acts of kindness toward them. Instead of avoiding them, you take them to lunch. That's what it means to bear with one another in love. And you know what we'll be doing when, when we do that, folks? We will be guarding. We'll be guarding. That, that's, that's what that word says. Verse 3. Eager to maintain. That word maintain means to keep or to guard something, to take care of something. We're, we're going to be responding to a critical need in our families and in our church by guarding the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. You have those emergencies in your life? You have them in your family? Family begins to divide, conflict, disagreement. Hey, that's an emergency. It's an emergency that we have to handle how? Man, by laying down the law. No. That especially does not work with your wife or your husband. By humility. By patience. By meekness. By forbearance. And you know what happens? We, we protect, we keep the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. What happens when we don't do that? Well, if we don't do that, I think the worst thing is that we say something about the gospel that's not true. Right? Because what are we supposed to be doing? We're doing this. Why? Because we want to live a life that's worthy of what Jesus has done. And so what that means is that when we don't maintain, when we don't keep, when we don't take care of, of the relationships in the body of Christ. What does that mean? It means we're saying to the world. You know what Jesus did is not that big a deal. I don't want to say that. I don't think you want to say that. Let's not say that. Got a great opportunity tonight by the way. Brother Andrew's going to tell you about it in a minute. We're going to come together as a church. Prayerfully God will give us good weather. So that we can spread out. Outside. And 
have a good time together tonight. It'd be a great, it'd be a great opportunity to live this out. But I bet you're gonna have an opportunity before that. I bet you're gonna have an opportunity when you leave this building, actually. Let's do it. Father, I thank you for uh, for the incredible blessings that you have poured into our lives. Thank you for the high calling that you have given to us. God, enable us to live in a way that is worthy of that gospel, that is worthy of that calling. Father, help us to be humble. God, not to exalt ourselves, not to demand that we, we be right or that we be treated in a certain way or that we be catered to or that we get our way. God, forgive us for that, that, that wicked spirit. And God, help us to have spirits of, of humbleness, of meekness, of gentleness, of patience, of forbearance with one another. Father, we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.